You are listening to How We Got Loud. Let's go on a journey together, exploring stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. I'm your host, Chris Leonard. Early on in life, I knew that all I ever wanted to do was live sound. We all know that feeling, whether it was the first time you pushed up a fader and heard that kick drum beat your chest, or hearing the crowd roar as they see their favorite band for the first time. It's a feeling like no other, and every experience fuels the desire for more. Well, I just always have had a desire to uh, get the best sound. It's like, you know, audio nirvana. I want to reach that. I'm always reaching for that. I'm also uh, always anxious to succeed at a challenge. A lot of the artists that I work with, I almost purposely worked with artists that are known for being very challenging to work with because I love succeeding at a challenge with, uh, you know, with an artist. There is just something about this industry where our primary goal is to deliver an experience that people will remember for a lifetime. While the tech innovation over time is key, I believe at the core, all of us have a passion that drives us. Let's look back and explore how the people, technology, and passion all intertwine to get us where we are today. The history of live sound is so much more than just technology advancement. I want to know who are the people and what are their stories. I believe you will find some very common threads as we go on this journey together of how we got loud. Today I'm talking with Ken Newman, currently the front of house engineer for Barry Manilow, who's had an amazing career over the last 40 plus years with acts like Paul Anka, Shirley MacLaine, Liza Minnelli, Chris Isaac, Anita Baker, Julio Iglesias, the list goes on. But before we get to all of that journey, let's jump back and see where it all started for Ken. Ken, so let's uh, let's let's talk about um, your your early beginnings. How did how did you initially get into uh, into this crazy world of, of doing sound? Ooh, long story, I guess. But, uh, you know, I was born and I had a soldering iron in my hand when I was born because my parents were ham radio operators and my father was uh, at, a, at a bunch of electronic stores. And so I was always surrounded by electronic stuff. And so it was one thing or another growing up as I was, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years old. I'm working on ham radio things and uh, electronic projects. And then, uh, you know, then I'm in school, in elementary school, I took trumpet lessons and tried to play the trumpet in the school band. And then next thing you know, the, the leader of the band says, hey, you know, we want to start recording the band. And so um, so I said, oh, well, you know, my father has an electronic store. He could probably get some good deals on tape recorders and whatever other equipment we need because he sells electronic stuff. I was wrong, but, you know, my father helped us out and he got some some tape recorders of some sort. They weren't the best or anything, but we got some tape recorders and I started uh, being in charge of the uh, school band recordings. And that was like a big deal. And then uh, one thing leads to another and I'm more involved in recording and sound stuff more and more. And uh, then in, in high, I got in high school and in high school we had a TV um, studio in the school and I got involved in that a little bit. And of course it was in the old days. So it was like a little black and white studio with uh, two inch tape and all. But, um, 
it was TV and it was, we had to do audio and we had a meeting, or a, I should say a morning show every morning. So we had to make sure that that was working. I remember there was an Altec 50, 1567 was our audio console. So we did our morning broadcast and then that was about all we had to do all day for our TV show. Uh, but then um, I somehow met this guy and, you know, I, I like to think that in my life, I've just met people that have really changed my life in a lot of ways. Anyway, I met this guy who was a student a couple of years older than me. And he, of all things, had a studio in his house. And that was like unheard of in that era. And I, he let me come over to his house and check out his studio. And I, I, so I would ride my bicycle over to his house every Sunday and hang out with him while he recorded these bands. And oh, it was great. It was a, uh, a, small studio in his basement of his parents house but he had a four track half inch tape deck and man just you know the sounds that he would do and they would that he would get it was just uh, so invigorating and i was like this is it this is cool i gotta do this right and uh and so um i said well my parents aren't gonna let me take over my basement but maybe i can put together some equipment and record bands uh remotely like you know take equipment to the bands instead of uh have them come to me. And so I did that. I got some equipment. My father helped me get deals on a you know, better tape deck and some microphones and a mixer and this and that. And before I knew it, I was recording bands, uh, little, you know, local rock bands. And one thing leads to another, then I'm working for a local rock band. And then I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do you do sound for a local rock band? And it just, you know, just evolved really, uh, really generically and uh i just knew technology stuff so i just was one notch above everybody else at that point and so working for a band that had a if you want to call it a sound system at the time i helped them improve the sound system and um and worked on that and then ah, gosh just one thing leads to another and before you know it they're uh they're they're a label act they're working on rca records and then i'm working for other bands that are national recording acts and next thing you know i'm working for a sound company and all, on and on i could just you know i could tell you the exact details of exactly <laughs> where i was and stuff but that's boring but the point is that um i just one thing evolved into another and i'm working for a sound company and i'm doing live sound and i'm working on a national tour and we're we're doing sound for a band from England and it's just really cool. And the, I'll tell you what the, um, the moment when I said, Oh, I have to do this for the rest of my life. Well, for me, wasn't even a sound moment necessarily, but it was a, you know, something that I achieved using sound equipment. And let's see if I can tell this story quickly. So I'm working for the sound company. It was in the mid seventies. So it wasn't a very good, but a bunch of equipment we had, but the Doobie brothers were on the road. Now the Doobie brothers were in their, in their, you know, prime right at that point. And, but their, their sound crew had decided to buy their own sound system and setting, instead of getting like a sound company to provide their sound system, the band owned their own sound system. And it was the Doobie brothers with the Ozark mountain daredevils opening to them. And they were doing a national tour. Well, they had bought consoles that were made by, I think a company called was called Stevenson. Anyway, the company built these consoles just for the Doobie Brothers tour, a monitor console and a house console. And the Doobie Brothers at that time had two drummers. So they had what was considered lots of inputs at the time. They had 30 inputs, right? It was big. So they would they needed a 30-channel console for monitors, 30-channel console for house. And what happened when they were on the East Coast where I was? their console blew up one night. And so they had to get a new console real quick. So they 
one of the guys on the crew knew my boss. And so they called my boss and they said, bring your console. You have a 30 channel console, right? And I'm like, yep, we have a 30 channel console. And so bring your console to our next gig and we're good. We need it right away. So we drive out there to Pennsylvania somewhere and we deliver the console. And I could tell you stories about the console. It was not pretty, but uh, anyway, what the console had in the console frame, my, my boss had built a uh, Altec 9860 into the frame. Now 9860 was a single channel third octave eq that had a very beefy uh preamp in it lots of gain available maybe 20 db a gain or something if if you needed it and lots of headroom as well so the reason i mention that is because that was the final thing in the chain after all the parts of the console to go to feed the sound system was that eq and so i'm out there with the doobie brothers and they had also gotten a console from another company and they so they're doing they're doing the show with the Ozark Mountain Daredevils opening uh, with this other console and it's sounding like really bad and so you know it's uh, someplace in Maryland I think we were right and so they're doing the show the Ozark Mountain Daredevils do like two songs and it sounded so bad that they cut their sh- their set short they're like I remember I can remember like it was yesterday and this is a long time ago but uh, the one of the musicians in the band comes off stage and he says man sounds like, sounds like sand sandpaper out there and I was like oh I know what that sounds like <laughs> you know everything's all distorted nothing's clean at all and I was like oh this guy just needs more gain on his console. The console does not have enough output level to drive his sound system. So I'll offer my 9860, which has a lot of really clean gain, and he can just I can just patch it in line with the feed to the PA, which of course at the time was one XLR, right? I'll patch my 9860 in line with the PA feed, and it'll fix everything because all of a sudden he'll be able to turn everything down and he won't overdrive everything on the console. And sure enough, he said, I got him on the intercom and I said, listen, I'll just put my EQ in there. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's try it. So I, I get my EQ out of the console. I put it in line and I crank up the gain to like 15, 20 dB or something. And I go out there on stage and I go, check. And the my voice was so much louder than the opening band and so much cleaner than the opening band that the place went nuts. The whole place just went, <laughs> yay! You know, and so there was my moment and I went, yeah, I could do that. You know, so that was my moment where I said, wow, this is great. I I, I did something that caused so much joy for people in the audience. I got to do this. And so that was my, I got to do this moment. It was really cool to be able to clean up that sound of that whole show. It was great. So, you know, what, what's interesting about that is um, there, there's two sides to what created that moment, right? So there was, a, there was a technology side to that moment of, you know, there was a problem uh, and there, there was a, a technological way of, of solving it. Um, and so in, on, in one aspect, you were driven to find that solution. Oh, hey, I have a solution. I can get there. On the other hand, uh, I, you probably didn't realize um, the most value at that time you're gonna get out of it was the was the emotion that you felt from being able to deliver that experience to an audience. Am I right? Exactly. That was it. Who knew that that was gonna happen? Right. And so I, you know, I I find this theme of you know what we do as as sound people in this industry of you know i i'm i'm curious on at, at the core what drives us or the industry right does the technology drive us and then the emotional response comes after or vice versa is there this emotional response that then you know propels the need for technology you know like yeah yeah for came first right yeah yeah right you know yeah. and it's it's you know and if i if i 
process it out. I think about, you know, the artists have created this work of art, this experience, this medium that's supposed to be uh, engaged upon collectively. Right. right? Um, and yet you need technology to uh, to continue that. You know, we're responsible for delivering that medium and, and engaging in that. Um, and it's so looking back now, uh, you know, you said you kind of started off as somewhat of a tech head in some ways in the fact that you know your father worked electronics uh yep, you know yep. you built you built some of your own console type of stuff and 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 the recording rigs um do you think you were initially fueled by the tech side and then the the passion energy connection element came after uh or do you think some of it was there and you just didn't realize it what was that like for you yeah that's a good good question again but uh, i think it's yeah the tech side was like yeah i want to do this because i i get a rush out of you know making people happy with something I did with this technology, you know, just that's, I guess that's the core of it. You know, that's uh, why I would do anything that I would do would be because I want to make this great sound that makes people happy. That's, that's what's great about it. And so, and roughly what, what year range was this, um, the Doobie Brothers show? So that was 74. I want to jump back to, um, you know, so you, you created uh, or built, your your own mobile recording rig. Um, what what was what was that made of, and what did it take to to get to there? Well, so uh, I uh, my my friend in his home studio, he had a a Gately mixer, and that was his mixer in his studio. And believe it or not, in his home studio, all that mixer had was four input channels, and so and a stereo output. So I was like, well, Gately, that's a good brand. Okay, so I kept on top of what kind of products they put out, and they produced a product called the ProKit series. And it was actually professional-ish products that could be built from a kit. And it was a six-channel mixer. Woo! Six-channel stereo <laughs> mixer. Had a lot of channels. And and it was not only built from a kit, so it was very economical, but it was modular in that you could buy a reverb module and you could buy an EQ module. And that, that way you could start with just your basic mixer and then grow from there so i said well that's for me that's perfect in fact i ordered one before they even were available and i remember um getting a uh, ampex am10 mixer as a temporary you know like a uh, substitution for the mixer because i ordered it and they didn't have it so they said well here take this am10 in the meantime and the am10 is like a classic mixer to this day people look at that and go oh yeah ampex oh yeah 70s oh great but anyway um but the uh but the gately pro kit was really neat because again i was able to build a kit because i was you know, I knew how to solder and I knew how to follow directions and it was fantastic. And so that uh, became the core of my recording setup. And then a friend of mine said, hey, well, you need more channels. So uh, how about if I buy a, a Shure mixer and we'll add some more channels to your mixer. So instead of six channels, you'll have 10 channels. It'll be really capable. And so he bought a little Shure M688, I think it was called, a little Shure stereo mixer that looks kind of like an M67. And we added that in the rack, and there was my recording setup, 10 whole channels. And I don't know, somehow I recorded bands with 10 channels. I'm not sure how I did it, but... Um, but I have the recordings and they're not horrible. You know, some of them are not, not great, but they're not horrible. So it's pretty impressive what I was able to do with 10 channels. And what were you recording to? Uh, oh, and then the tape deck that I got. So my father, I, I don't know, somehow I, I, um, I had a connection or something with TIAC. TIAC made these nice tape decks at the time and, um, they had, you know, 
consumer models and then higher end consumer models. And I said to my father, I want to get the higher end consumer model because it takes 10 and a half inch reels so, and it goes 15 IPS. So let me get that. And so he helped me get that. And I um, got that through his connections uh, from one of his distributors. And we got that TX tape deck, which I still have to this day. And it's sitting in my garage somewhere. But I put that um, put that uh, TX tape deck in portable cases, separated the electronics from the from the transport, put it in two separate cases that Ampex made and I bought used. And um, that was my recording rig was the tape deck and the uh, the mixer, the two mixers. And the um, and I had a little power amp, a Dynaco power amp that powered my really loud headphones so that I could sit right near the band and still hear what I was doing in the headphones. That's awesome. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and 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 so you even and you even modified that setup though to include uh, pan pan knobs. Well, yeah. So the the Gately uh, ProKit mixer had switches on each channel, so you could either assign a an input channel to left or to right or to both, but not anything in between. So I said, well, that's kind of you know I don't really want that. I want pan pots. I want to be able to do yours is no disgrace. You know the guitar on yours yours is no disgrace because the band recorded. I mean the band played. You're just yours. Is no disgrace. And you're familiar with that thing? You know, it's got the guitar going mm -hmm. back and forth. And so I wanted to be able to do that. And so I, I somehow, I don't know how I did it, uh, but somehow I contacted somebody and they told me, well, just do this and do this and get these parts and those parts. And I made a pan pot module for that mixer and inserted it where you would normally insert, I guess, something else or something. <laughs> anyway, it was bizarre. But somehow I made this pan pot module and uh, connected it to the mixer. And now I had panning on every channel instead of just the switches. It was very cool. Very cool awesome. modification. Uh, you know, who knew that like a 16 year old kid could do this kind of stuff, <laughs> but it worked. So fast forward a little bit. You, so you said you eventually started to work uh, for a sound, sound company um, after doing some of your own personal stuff. Yeah. So then uh, working for band, I, uh, got, you know, I made connections with different people. And uh, one of the people that I made a connection with was the salesman at the company in New York City. The company was called Martin Audio at the time. And there was a salesman there named Marvin Welkowitz. And Marvin Welkowitz was really into live sound. So when I came through the door looking for some live sound gear, they said, oh, go to that guy, go see Marvin. And uh, so I went to see Marvin, even though Martin Audio was kind of a, a recording studio kind of supply house. And um, so this is not the Martin Audio in terms of. No, no, it was a sales place. <laughs> no, not Martin Audio as in um, England and all that. No, it's just a place in New York City called Martin Audio. And <laughs> way before, or in my mind, way before Martin Audio, the, the speaker uh, manufacturer. So uh, anyway, so Martin Audio was the place. Marvin Welkowitz was the guy. And I worked with him on building this whole little sound system for this band that I worked for. And Marvin saw that I was able to make this work and make that work and put things together and so forth. So when the opportunity arose, he said, hey, you know, I know this sound company in New Jersey, this old guy that uh, needs uh, a guy to work for him. You know, you, you would really work well for him. So how would you like to work for him? I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So I moved to New Brunswick, New Jersey and worked for this little sound company in New Brunswick. And uh, it was uh, it was great. It was a real you know stepping stone for to work for a sound company and help build things and, and make gigs happen and so forth and and not to mention he also owned a whole bunch of hammond organs and pianos so we would go out on gigs just delivering organs and pianos sometimes too and it was great to be just doing a lot of gigs so and this was csi audio in around 1974 
Uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, CSI audio. Yeah. So when when you walked in there, what 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 type of gear did they have? You know, speaker console wise, like what what existed at that time for you to work on? Well, he had built all his own speaker cabinets. He had built the wooden cabinets that surrounded his horns, and he uh, tried to use good stuff. Uh, but he had some interesting approaches. Uh, he had so he had some some W bins. You know what those are, of course, yep. right? But they were big. They had like. Well, like four fifteens in a big giant W bin, right? And uh, it was large. I mean, tall, big, beefy bin, and it sounded mm -hmm. sounded pretty solid. Then he had some smaller ones that only had two fifteens in them, and then he had I forget what else, but you know, some horns and some other horns. The interesting thing that he had going was the, his console and his um, and his uh, power amp situation was very bizarre. He had Crown DC300s, not DC300As, but DC300s, and that he had what he called, or what were called uh, PA adapters on them. I don't know. You ever heard of that? No. Okay. So what, what it was meant to do is meant it, it would take, it, it was like a 2U adapter box that would take the outputs of the power amp and then put them into a... Uh, into another connector, like a you know another pair of banana connectors, that would then feed a whole bunch of seventy volt transformers. So I think it was all seventy volt line based, and mm -hmm. we would power everything with those Crown DC three hundreds with the PA adapters on them. And though we would have just horns upon horns, and you could just tack a whole bunch of horns onto one power amp because you would tap the horn at whatever power amp you uh, power level I should say you wanted. It's very common in in. Uh, installations mm -hmm. but he was doing it for live sound it was pretty bizarre but it worked you know it was pretty successful we had a good sounding pa and we knew how to make it work and it, it worked pretty great and uh, and then but it was pretty bizarre that we had those pa adapters was the kind of heart of our crown power amp system uh and i'm not sure i never knew why he adapted those instead you know adopted those i should say instead of um just having the outputs of the power amp go directly to the speakers, he must have been convinced that he must have to have transformers at every uh, horn and and transformers at every speaker and tap the amount of power that each speaker should get and stuff like that in order to make it work right. I guess he was just convinced that was the right way to do it. <clears throat> and so what did I know? I was just following along. But and, uh, the what, console, but the console, console was, yeah. was the trick. Oh, this was amazing. So, you know, it wasn't, easy to find a console to buy at that time. Uh, you couldn't just go out and buy a, even a Mackie mixer or even a Tapco mixer. It was all before that stuff, right? So if you wanted a, a console, you had to sort of build something yourself. So I, if I can, I can picture it, but I, I don't know if I can describe it, but it was three racks, three rack widths wide, right? It was a, a frame that was shaped like a console would be shaped like a like a mixing console, but three rack widths wide. So picture that you know it's got the sloped uh, panel there, and it, and he, then he had so on each rack width, so he had two Altec mixers on each uh, section of the console, and then that section hinged up so you could get to the back of it or something, uh, you know, for servicing and stuff. And on the <laughs> on the first two mixers they were 1592s that was the newer solid state uh altec mixer so that was quote unquote better 1592 mixer uh he had altec i mean not altec he had uh api 550 eqs that his tech this guy marty had you know 
wired into his mixers so that each channel had an API 550 on his Altec, I mean, yeah, his Altec 1592 mixers. So he had 10 channels per rack width and then 10 channels of 550. It was very bizarre. I can, I can show you a picture of it, but it was very, by that, today's standards, 30, it was quite bizarre. Is that 30 but channel console that But it was time? 30 channels, six wow. of these mixers, right? But, the, but, the, um, but only the first 10 channels or something like that had the 550s on them because those were kind of pricey. And so the other channels had the, um, like the middle, middle two mixers had the Marty EQ, which was just a high and low EQ for each channel. And then the last two channels, uh, you know, 10 channels of mixers had, um, had no EQ at all. They were just flat. And so it was very bizarre, uh, kind of configuration, but it worked. It got our 30 channels down to one channel and mixed everything together. And Marty was quite the technical wizard apparently because he made this all work properly. And then we just used it and it was this big giant console, you know, think about that. It was pretty large mm -hmm. and it was heavy and it was in a not current you know not a modern kind of case it was like you, you put it was a big wooden case and you'd put it on the floor and then you'd reach in to lift out the console very very not you know ergonomic at all but but it worked was the point and and with those 550 eqs on the first 10 channels if you did your drums in your first 10 channels it was really good i mean it was way better than a lot of things at the time so we couldn't complain about it you know and event eventually though he said well i need something a little more you know, mainstream. So he got a Sun mixer, and I forget what it was, what the mixer was called, but it was Sun S U N N, uh, mm -hmm. music store kind of brand that actually came out with like a maybe twenty four channel or sixteen channel mixer, and we got one of those, and that was revolutionarily quote unquote better because it was all in one little package. Was there what about um at that time? Was there any outboard in terms of was any compressors or reverbs or delay at that point? Like tape wow, delays that's and good question. Um, I seem to remember using my tape deck, that same uh, same TAC deck that I used for recording. I would use that for tape echo, mm. uh, but it, of course it only had one speed and only had one uh, one delay time, so it wasn't perfect. But I remember using that for tape echo because I remember finding a reel not that long ago of tape and it said echo on it, and then I listened to it and it was just random stuff uh, uh, that had been recorded on the tape like uh, just a lead vocal though. So I must've used it for some sort of a slap echo, but not all the time, just sometimes. And that, <laughs> that it was very, very, you know, very basic. I was not, you know, in the other click where people had fancy consoles and fancy stuff. I was just following along with whatever we could get our hands on. And that was what we could get our hands on. Definitely don't remember having any reverb to speak of. Um, and definitely don't remember it like, okay. And then like for monitors, we had a separate console, if you will. It was just a rack of 1592s. So I think it was three or four 1592s in a rack. And you just turn up the knob till it, you know, till it fed back and then you turn it back down, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was it. It's Not much different than we do now, actually, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but it was, you know, speakers and he had built his own wedge monitors. I forget what they looked like, but they were, I'm sure they were clunky. And it was it was what it was, but we did a lot of shows uh, in the New York metropolitan area, and uh, it was what it was. And so, and that would have been was that your first time being experienced to a multicellular uh, array of, of boxes, you know, um, with crossovers and stuff like that. Well, the you know using the sound system that I had built with the, the band that I worked for, I had adapted it to be electronically crossed over. 
And uh, so I knew what electronic crossover was and I knew the basics of it, but we only had with the band, we only had two bass bins, two horns and two tweeter horns, two high end horns. And so it was really basic with, with uh, CSI audio, we had more, more bins and more mid range horns, more high horns. It was just more of the same. So it was just like, okay, let's just keep piling more. If we need more, we got more. And, uh, and he had also higher quality stuff. Uh, He had like, uh, some good Altec drivers that actually sounded really good on the mids and highs. So, uh, moving out of this, you, you kind of, you, you went in house, right? Uh, toward the, the casino route after CSI. Well, I went back to work for some bands again. Mm. And then, uh, and then I went on the road with some, some, some bands and, uh, started my uh, association with a one audio. And then, um, when I when I called A One Audio to see if they had any gigs in uh, in L A area or on the road or anything, they said no, we don't have anything on the road, but we've got a uh, lead sound position in Atlantic City. Uh, they have casinos there, and I was like, I lived in New Jersey, so I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of Atlantic City. I didn't know about casinos or anything, and they said, uh, yeah, there's a they have a showroom there that needs a sound guy, and I'm thinking they sell cars in the casino what's a showroom <laughs> i just had no idea what a showroom was i remember thinking that distinctly and so but i went there i drove down to atlantic city and i met the owner of the company and he was super nice and he told me all about the gig and he showed me the payroll and as soon as he showed me the payroll i was like oh i'm in Duh. you know it was like <laughs> quadruple the amount of money that i had been making previously and i said sold i can do this and they also they had a, a pm 1000 there and they had a or an okay sound system. Their sound system at that showroom was based around the speaker system that they typically provided for Vegas casinos at the time. And that was a JBL 4350 box in case you know what that is. It was basically, I think that box was designed to be a studio monitor in, in the studio, like not in the control room, but in the studio mm-hmm. of a large studio. And, but they, they, we had four of them in a cluster. So four full range cabinets next to each other in a cluster. And then that was kind of our whole sound system. Uh, uh, they were bi-amped, but, you know, crossed <laughs> bi-amped. It was a kind of an exaggeration of what they were, but uh, the crossover point was 250 Hertz so that at least the low end was separated from the rest of the box. The rest of the box had a passive crossover in it to get from the mids to the highs. Uh, but it was uh, it was the thing at the time, four 4350s in a cluster. And then when I got there, they said, I mean, when I started the job, they said, we need to add more speakers because we're having Sinatra going to uh, play here. And uh, he needs more sound equipment than just this one cluster. We need to cover the room better. So we added two more clusters of two 4350s each uh, to the sides of the room. And that made it better. And uh, we had our... 32 channel PM 1000 and whatever else we had, uh, we had, we had reverb there. So that was cool. But, uh, <laughs> it was a, uh, what did we have? We had that mic mix, uh, thing that, um, didn't somebody tell you about that? Yeah. Well, let's see. Somebody told you about that on a podcast. I think it was the, uh, the reverb unit that they flew on the, on the road. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Same uh, reverb unit. Who was telling you about that? I forget. I, I forget. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was the on the road, they would fly it. Well, at this place, we hung it on the wall backstage and it was, uh, it was the mic mix reverb unit. And that was what we had there. And, um, 
and it was, you know, we had a lot of good shows there, uh, we, but mainly we had Frank Sinatra for a week or something because that was his return to Atlantic City. And I was important in that I could install the rest of the sound system and make it all work properly. You know, coming coming off of uh, you know CSI, where you're on a on a homemade console, homemade speaker, um, you know, but before but before getting to the casino, where you have all this uh, stuff that's like manufactured made. Um, what was it like jumping to finally these you know manufactured consoles? And you know, had you seen a PM one thousand prior to getting to the casino? Well, yeah, the PM one thousand had been out for a while when I finally got to have it at the casino. But I working for these bands, we got to see every different kind of thing that would be called a console known and there were lots of good ones and lots of not so good ones in that at that era but uh like i remember one console was made by tycho bray and it was this little very powerful little console but it had little knobs and little it was just small if i recall correctly and uh but it was really solidly made and tycho bray was a southern southern california sound company that had their own speaker cabinets and their own console and that's what a lot of sound companies did at the time they would mm -hmm. make their own like claire brothers had their own console uh for a while that it wasn't quite out yet in that era but a little later in the 80s that was when i uh, came across that a few times but anyway the point is that uh manufactured consoles were were few and far between uh other than sound company manufactured consoles and so it was it was the era of just use whatever they give you and make the best of it how much uh so in back into the casino world um how much of that was there um touring engineers coming through or how much were you mixing the acts each night Oh, that's a good question. If I recall correctly, it was it was about 70-30. Like I would mix some of the shows and but a lot of them would 70% of them would come through with their own people. So like uh, if I can remember some of the artists like Frank Sinatra had his own guy, Diana Ross had her own guy, um but yet Bernadette Peters didn't have their own guy, Tony Bennett didn't have his own guy. Um, I forget some of the other artists we had there, but it was all those kind of performers. And depending on what level they were at, they either had their own people or not. And, uh, you know, it was neat because you get to learn as in any venue gig, uh, you get to learn from the people that come in things mm. to do and things not to do. Uh, you know, like the, the guy with Diana Ross, I remember he was a Canadian, French Canadian guy and man, he made that sound system sing. It was so much better sounding for that show than any other show that came through there. It was like, wow, this guy really knows what he's doing. And I tried to, you know, glean some of the knowledge that I, uh, learned or gained by watching him. Uh, it was, it was really cool. What do you think you learned the most? Uh, you know, doing doing that house gig um during that time um you know still relatively early in your career what was impressed upon you most during that time well in atlantic city uh at, the, at resorts anyway that was my first gig and that was mostly just work all the time we worked a lot of shows that we had a production show and we had to change it over from the change uh, from the production show to the what we called star policy show in the evening, like say a Frank Sinatra would play at night and we'd have a production show during the day for the bus crowd and uh, just, you know, work ethic, just working hard and knowing to work hard and not complain about it and just get the job done and make sure that it's the same as it was last night for the, for the incoming artists and making sure that the show is the same every day for the, for the daytime show and just consistency and, 
working hard to make it happen and, you know, doing planning things so that, you know, you're so that you're successful, not setting yourself up for failure at all. Like we had, uh, when I first got there, we had a playback system based on, uh, carts and, you know, like, like radio stations use carts. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was playback based on that. And I'll tell you what, the, like must have been like the first week I was there. I did not know anything about carts and they had the, uh, these long carts, maybe they were like 20 minutes or something each. And I don't know if you've ever used carts. I don't, I barely remember because it was a really bad experience I had with carts. But anyway, the point is that, uh, we had Gene Kelly there. Gene Kelly, you've heard of Gene Kelly. He was an mm -hmm. actor, right? And he did, he did the singing in the rain bit. Well, for some reason there was a, a cart that played along, played, played along with singing in the rain. I forget what it was. Maybe it was the tapping noise of his toe, you know, his dancing or something, but we had mm -hmm. this cart that had to play along with him. And so I, I hit, I, I, I don't know. I did something like I hit the wrong button and hit, instead of hitting play, I hit fast forward. And that meant that the cart had to fast forward through the whole cart, 20 minutes of tape. And it was very slow at doing that. So the band had to vamp for like four minutes or something. It was the most painful four minutes ever. And I was like, oh my God, I will never do that again. And I, as quickly as possible, I moved away from that format of carts for playback as I could. I just did not want to ever see carts again. That was a bad thing. So, you know, nowadays it's, it's a lot easier to perfect your craft. You can do virtual sound check. You can do all oh, these things, man, back, back in, you know, so we're talking late seventies here, early eighties. Right. Um, what, what was it like to, uh, first off, you know, obviously there's countless amounts of sources of education now, whether it's, you know, you know, videos, whether it's books, whether it's magazines, whether, you know, whether it's, you know, classes, what was it? How did you um, gain your experience? How did you perfect your craft outside of just the actual show itself back then? Well, such great questions, Chris. Uh, so I would say, well, one of the things that I did uh, was I tried to learn from other people that knew what they were doing as much as possible. And then I also um, tried to attend some classes here and there. I did attend the SynodCon um, mm -hmm. class that was put on by Don Davis Don at Davis, the time. Yep. Yeah. And I, I learned a little bit from that about commercial sound, not about music sound, re, you know, reinforcement, but about sound reinforcement in general and for doing speech type stuff. So that was kind of a little bit helpful. And then I also, there was a school called the Institute of Audio Research. And I seem to remember this was, you know, before cell phones and stuff like that. Uh, so I wrote a letter to the guy that was the, I don't know, main guy at Institute of Audio Research or something. And, you know, I like typed a letter on my little manual typewriter. Uh, Dear sir, I'd really like to attend one of your classes or something like that. So he invites me. It was a guy named John Warham. And he invited me to one of the classes in New York City. And I actually attended one of the classes. And I, I feel like that I just like learned some basics of recording studio knowledge from that little class for an hour that he let me attend just to kind of see the class. I was, you know, in hopes he was hoping that I would sign up for the class and pay for it, but that never happened. But <laughs> I just, what I was able to attend one class and it was kind of neat to just, you know, hear other people talking about audio and the right way to do things. But I just always kept my eyes and ears open for other ways to do things besides what I had thought of myself because what did I know? I just knew what I tried and other people had other ideas about what was right and what was wrong. It was, it was always very interesting to 
work on a show where some really good sound guy was involved, like working for the sound company. Uh, uh, one of the things I recall was we did the uh, folk festival out at Nassau Community College, and we had our entire sound system set up out there, and it sounded good and everything. We we were fine with it. Uh, you know, it was making sound, and people were happy. But we had this one engineer came with one artist, and he had a set of phase checkers. And I was like, phase checker? What's that? You know, I was like, what is, you know, this is a new thing. And it was mm -hmm. Uh, he went through our entire, all our horns and found that a couple of our horns were out of polarity with the other ones. And I was like, wow, we got to fix that and figure out why that even happened. You know, that shouldn't happen. And, uh, uh you know, th that kind of moment, you know, it's like a light bulb going off over your head when these things happen and you start being more aware of things that you can do to improve the overall, uh, sound of a show. That's interesting. So speaking of which, what what's the first time you saw an RTA? Ha. RTA. Wow. That's a good question. Um, that is a good question. I think maybe the, uh, when I got connected with a one audio in the early eighties sometime, maybe, maybe at, maybe at resorts, maybe we had an IE 30, the IV analyzer. Yeah. I think maybe we had the IV IE 30 at resorts possibly, or somebody brought one in and, you know, used it with their artist or something. But that would have been the first analyzer that I saw, I think, was the IB, IE30. You familiar with that one? I'm not. So what was what was that experience like the first time you saw what you've been hearing for so long visualized? Oh, it was just it was just really, you know, like eye opening. You go, wow, look at that. Ooh, look at that. That there, you know, you can see peaks and valleys in the sound and know that well, that's that's wrong. And and you make it ring, make the feedback happen, you can see that um that light lighting up brighter than the rest of them. Come to think of it, there was there was a company called Phoenix Audio in uh, upstate New York, and uh, Phoenix Audio was very technically advanced. And they had, in their Altec EQs, their 9860s, they had put an LED driver circuit on each filter. So you could see the lights lighting up above each band of a third octave EQ. Uh, mm -hmm. as the sound was happening. So they would look for, you know, if, if something fed back, they could look over at the EQ and see that light light up. And then they would take that band down where the light was. And that was probably the first time I experienced uh, some kind of, you know, a visual representation of the sound. And so at what point, uh, you know, once you got introduced to analyzers and stuff, did you start incorporating that into, uh, say, you know, tuning a system? Well, I got, I don't re recall using an analyzer very much until they became computer based. And I, I, uh, gosh, I was, uh, okay. I was working for Barry Manilow, I'm pretty sure. And I was in, um, uh, in Chicago at the, what's the name of the venue in Chicago, the uh, auditorium there. Um, anyway, I was at this venue and I, I wish I could remember the name of the guy, a, a well-known guy in the audio industry comes up behind me anyway. And he says, Oh, you're not using SpectraFoo on your computer. What's wrong with you? And I was like, SpectraFoo. I thought that was for studios. He's like, no, it's great for live too. You should really check it out here. Here's my card, you know, tell them I sent you and get a copy of SpectraFoo. You'll really love it. And so that was when I like started using SpectraFoo on my computer. And oh, Rudy Arias, that's his name. That guy, Rudy, turned me on to SpectraFoo. And um, 
And then I started using Spectrophone. And I was like, oh, this is so much better than doing it by ear. I mean, especially delay times when you can set a delay time with a device and it's so accurate to where that microphone is placed. And it's so great. This is really an advantage. And then uh, when Smart came out, uh, I didn't adapt to it very quickly because I had Spectrofoo, but eventually I got a copy of Smart and that was so great. I mean, I think I got Smart after experiencing Sim on Meyer mm-hmm. uh, uh, systems. And in fact, I got, oh, yeah, this is going to be interesting. Let's see. In the mid nineties, I was getting ready to do the Julio Iglesias gig and, and they, we normally had a SIM operator on the Julio Iglesias gig and we didn't have one or something, something like that. And so Jamie Anderson, before he worked for his own company, worked for Meyer at the time, he gave me a crash course in SIM and he's like, okay, this is how you use SIM. And he gave me a real quick course on how to use SIM. And so that was when I was introduced to the SIM technique of and of uh, measuring sound. And that of course is the predecessor to smart. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that SIM, the SIM machine was revolutionary. That was really cool. I, I remember um, on Anita Baker, we had uh, a, a SIM guy on every show. There was uh, just a guy to EQ the system and make sure it was consistent throughout the venue and through the, throughout the show. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, but, oh, and but, but, by the way, the, the really eye-opening moment with SIM was when I was working uh, for Anita Baker and it was early in rehearsals and sh- the whole tour was sort of Meyer sponsored or something. So they had a lot of, we had a lot of Meyer equipment and a lot of Meyer support from Meyer people. And again, Jamie was working at Meyer at the time. And so he came into our rehearsal and he said, um, he said, let me, you know, uh, let me help you with the EQ of the system. And he said, do you like the way it sounds now? I said, yeah, it's okay. It was some MSL threes and some six fifties. I said, it's okay. I mean, it could be better, but it's okay. And he goes, well, let me, uh, let me get the SIM machine and start messing around with it. So he messes around with it with the SIM machine a little bit. And he puts some parametric EQs in there instead of my third octaves that I had. And he said, he says, all right, I did, I duplicated what you had on the third octaves. What do you think? And I played, played some music through it or something. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. Uh, He said, all right, well, what don't you like about it? And I I left and then I came back and uh, he said, uh, how do you like it now? And I, and I uh, listened to it some more. It got better with each progression and about four progressions, four, you know, changes into that wow, it just like snapped into place and it was like spectacular. And I was like, oh my God, I have to have this all the time because <laughs> it was like so great sounding. It sounded like all of a sudden it was the best sounding sound system. And minutes earlier, it had been just an okay sound system. You know what I mean? It went from went from okay to spectacular just by Jamie EQing it just right. It was really amazing. That, that's cool. Well, it so at, at what point, so let's maybe like jump back to, earlier days of system tuning at what point did you actually start putting uh an eq 31 band eq or or parametric at that point How, what was that progression like for you through the years oh yeah so like working for the local bands before i had you know access to any equipment was i had a sound craftsman 10 band eq stereo eq and i don't know if you're familiar with that but that was a a, a home stereo device and it was just uh you know RCA in and out kind of EQ. And we used that to the best of our ability to make the sound system sound as good as we could. And that was my introduction to EQing a sound system was with that 10 band per channel 
Sound Craftsman EQ. And then uh, working for the sound company, uh, I graduated to third octave EQs because we had maybe one stereo third octave EQ and one mono one or something in the whole company. And so third octave was like, oh, yeah, it's so much better. It's like more more exact. You can really, you know, find the right frequency instead of having to you know, turn down a whole octave. And that was a great move in the right direction. And then with uh, Anita Baker, with the SIM being introduced to the SIM machine and being uh, having the system EQ'd with only parametric EQs, told me that, yeah, parametric EQ is where it's at. I don't care if I ever use a third octave EQ again in my life, <laughs> you know? And so um, then, I, you know, adapting that to uh, using smart or even just using my ear um, with third, with parametric EQs was where it's at. And I, I rarely, if ever use a third octave. Um, and that's, you know, that was, I guess the change, the change went hand in hand with an analyzer that should, could show me what I was doing. Uh, you know, allowed me to change over to a parametric EQ that didn't chop up the sound nearly as much as the third octave EQ. Something that a lot of people uh, are curious about in the terms of timeline of our industry uh, is, you know, uh, one of the biggest pivotal moments would be the transition of analog to digital consoles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, what uh, um, what was your what was your experience there? Well, my experience there was that I that transition for me in my mind, I should say, happened in the early 2000s, like 2000 to 2010, somewhere in there, right? And I was working for a, a corporate staging company at the time, a company called uh, Video Apps, which turned into World Stage. And we, you know, we were of the mind that, like, why get a digital console if we don't need to? We use analog consoles and they're working just fine. So let's just stick with our analog consoles. They're fine. And as long as we do good sound, our clients are still happy. We don't really need a digital console. But at the same time, I had been exposed to, oh, you know, the simpler mixers like a ProMix 01 or a DMP7 as soon as they came out. And those simpler little mixers showed me that there's a lot to be gained by recalling a preset or, you know, having these changes happen automatically. And I was just like, really like that for certain functions. In fact, um, in fact, I used a uh, AMEC recall console, which was a predecessor to digital consoles. It was a, a digitally controlled analog console. And the AMAC recall became my favorite console after I started using it in the mid nineties. And it allowed me to have scenes and each scene, the main thing that each scene did for me was it would spit out MIDI changes. And those MIDI changes would change my ProMix 01s, which were submixing percussion and keyboards. And so I would be able to have part of my mix preset by those MIDI presets, uh, scene changes that would be sent to the uh, submixers, those ProMix 01s. And that was really cool because I, you know, the keyboards were a large part of the sound of the show. And so I would, cha uh, would change scenes and it would change the uh, outboard uh, effects as well as the, the submixes. And that was very advantageous to the sound of the show. And so I felt like I was just dabbling in that a little bit. And then when I got to uh, doing uh, corporate stuff all the time, what I did was I applied that same kind of theory to uh, having an outboard mixer just for videotape playback because videotape playback is a large part of uh, corporate events. Mm -hmm. And uh, But the videotapes are not very consistent. So if you just like 
you know, turn each video on and didn't have different EQ for each video, it might sound a little inconsistent. And so that could be annoying. So I, I said, you know, uh, let's get, let's at least, even though we're going to stick with a generally a analog console, because we don't want to invest in a digital console, let's at least get a, an outboard submixer. Like, so we got O3Ds, Yamaha O3Ds, mm -hmm. and that was our outboard submixer for video playback. And I made a rule of always putting the video playback into the O3D, and I would always have a separate preset for every video playback that happened, and then just recall that preset, and it was good to go. Um, so I sort of dabbled into digital consoles a little bit, but never went full force until uh, some of our clients who provided their own A1s on these corporate events insisted on on providing us providing a like a 5d or something right so um i got to experience a 5d because we provided it for the gig but somebody else was running it so i would try to learn as much as i could here and there but the for me the big change happened when i was forced to uh switch to a digital console on the manilow show that i was doing uh, I, I actually had not done the Manolo show for many years and I stopped doing it in around 2002 before the digital craze uh, fully took force and, um, and then came back in 2012 and the digital consoles were fully in effect at that point. So I had to go through this process, which happened in a, over the course of a couple of weeks of figuring out which digital console I was going to use for the Manolo show. And that was a very interesting couple of weeks, just exploring all the digital consoles that were available at the time. And long story short, I ended up on the Soundcraft VI6 uh, because it was a quick to learn console, quick to adapt to from having used analog consoles. And I knew that I was gonna have to come up with some good sounds right away and it had good uh, built-in effects and so forth. And I felt like that was the one. And that worked out really well for a number of years. And that was really great until, um, until we ran out of capabilities of that console and had to get something larger and I had to switch to the Digico platform. But the point is that the transition from analog to digital happened somewhat gradually for me over the course of years because I got to dabble in, you know, somebody's PM5D here or somebody's uh, uh, venue console there or something, a little bit of just hands-on a little bit, but I'm just not one of those people that can adapt quickly and I can't just go uh, throw throw a new console in front of me and I, and I can make it work. I really need to understand what was intended with each one of these controls on this console. And when I started using that VI6, in fact, I was able to use it pretty quickly, but to, to really get into it, I asked Soundcraft to send somebody to show me the inner workings of it and really how it works. And uh, Tom Durr from Soundcraft came down and sat with me for a few hours one night and just showed me all the things that I wanted to know about that console. And that was like really eye-opening and really got me firmly seated in the digital console realm. You know, uh, the I think the difference in the storyline that you, you're uh, portraying in your transition from analog to digital is that you know, I feel like uh, a lot of people that I was around during that time um, who kind of had your same upbringing and, and tenure and time um, were apprehensive, not apprehensive, uh, flat out uh, refusal to transition. Yeah. Right. right. Um, right. Uh, and for, for, for just the sake of just 
you know, hell no. Like this is, I, I'm not going to, why, why would I, you know, this, this stuff sounds like crap. Like I don't, I don't need this, whatever. Right. 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 As opposed to, I, I feel like what you're telling me is you at least apprehensive, but willing to at least go through the steps and understand the mechanics of, of why this is beneficial. Okay. What, in what places can this actually improve upon what I'm actually doing as opposed to just being flat out resistant? You're, you're, I, I, I assume you were resistant to, Hey, I, I have a good thing going. I don't want to mess that up. But what is it this can do? What, how can this improve things? Well, I, well, I like to look at things uh, like the good and bad column for everything that I do in life. And digital consoles are no exception. I, I was quick to realize that digital consoles have a lot of advantages and a few disadvantages. And for me, for my way of doing things, plus for being, uh, you know, the desire to be on the cutting edge, the advantages heavily outweighed the disadvantages of digital consoles. So I said, well, I'm going in full, full bore. I'm going to just go for it. And I really need to, you know, get, I really need to grasp what they're going to, they're going to do for me and how I'm going to do it and how I'm going to achieve what I achieved in the past, but just on a digital console and then take advantage of the advantages that it can offer me and then run with it and see what I can, you know, how I can, make things better by having a digital console. And it, it, that has worked out pretty well for me. I just n need to know what the, what the basis is, what the uh, advantages and disadvantages are. And uh, as much as I wish I had, you know, 64 faders available all the time so I could just reach for them, uh, that's a disadvantage of good digital consoles for me. But having all that memory and being able to store and just hit one button and it recalls all these settings, that is worth a million bucks, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, uh, now that we, we've, you know, we, we talked about a, a bunch of tech at this point and we, we alluded to early on that not all of our industry is about the tech. So um, look at looking back at, you know, you know, through those years, um, what, what really drove you most, uh, you know, passion side, tech side, and what at, can you look at back at it and say, hey, I was influenced most to go in this direction because of passion or because of tech? What what have you have you contemplated what that symbiotic relationship has been like through through the years? Yeah, well, I just always have had a desire to. Uh, get the best sound. It's like, you know, audio nirvana. I want to reach that. I'm always reaching for that. I'm also uh, always uh, anxious to succeed at a challenge. A lot of the artists that I work with, I almost purposely worked with artists that are known for being very challenging to work with because I love succeeding at a challenge with, uh, you know, with an artist and getting along with an artist in, in a way that's that I don't burn any bridges and I don't get fired or, you know, they don't, uh, I don't get mad at them. They don't get mad at me kind of thing. And after I've heard stories that they're just horrible to work for. And I prove that to be not so true. You know, I just, you know, I, I'm into a challenge and then succeeding at the challenge. That for me is like a large part of why I do what I do is because if I like, even these days, if I'm doing sound for a show and it, and it sounds good, I feel like I succeeded at that challenge of that show. And that, that is invigorating to me. And that's where I, you know, as they say, get my rocks off. Uh, that's when it, when a show sounds really good and it just, man, it just all comes together and the audience is there and it just, man, that's so invigorating. Absolutely. So, with, with as much change as there's been, you know, from when you started to there is now, uh, what's 
what's something that has um, that that never changes? What, what, yeah. what what's what's the what's the constant? What's the what, like looking back? SM fifty eight. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know I mean, yeah. whether yeah, it's like. technologically or whether it's uh, experience. Like what what um, what still remains to be true? What 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 has been that 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 dead center path through it? Yeah. Well, for me, just you know, getting good sound. You know, like uh, my friend Artie that I worked with with Paul Anka for many years. Artie would always say, "Just make it sound good." That's all he wants is he just wants good sound. So just you know, just succeeding at having good sound and 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 having it sound pleasing to the audience and knowing that the audience is all going to go home singing those songs and or if it's a business meeting they're all going to go down go home having heard every single word that was heard at that business meeting and really understand exactly what's going on and they're you know whatever the whatever the goal was of that situation succeeding at that goal and really really uh making everybody happy is what it comes down to that's that's really what it's all about so we we all learn from failures. What's um, what's uh, is there a is there a key failure that you really learned from, or a series of failures that that propelled you forward? Uh, how about um, well, well, certainly or, or, or mistakes. I don't, you know, yeah, I mean, that's certain, certain, well, certainly, okay. So there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about and and I, um, and I'm not one to talk because I'm not good at this, but how you know. Being your how you are as a person is just as important as what kind of sound you do. In other words, how you get along with your client who you're working for and how you uh, communicate with them and so forth is just as important as if you can do good sound. In other words, if you can't communicate with that client and you can't get along with them, yeah, who cares if it sounds good? You're you're fired. You're done. Right. But uh, what am I getting at? What what I'm getting at is that uh, the inverse is true as well. If you can prove that you can uh, do the right thing, uh, you can really uh, be successful. And I'm no one, because I'm no one to talk when it comes to getting along with the clients. I, I am not one of those Gabby, networky kind of guys that can get along with everybody. I get along with people because I respect them mm-hmm. and I um, and I do, you know, I want to get along with them so that I can do a good job for them. But I'm not one of those people that, hey, man, how's it going? And just, you know, shooting the shit just because that that's what you do. I'm not good at that at all is my point. But I'm good at telling the truth and I'm good at uh, fessing up when I make a mistake. So like one of my favorite stories that, you know, turned into a real good gig was when I first started working for Paul Anka uh, – and he's known for being very particular with with everybody, with musicians, with sound people, lighting people, everything. He's very demanding and very uh, angry when things don't go right, right? So, uh, you know, we're a couple of weeks into the gig. I'm, I'm mixing front of house and monitors from front of house. And, uh, and he's pretty demanding and it's got to be right all the time. And he never comes to sound check. So it's, it's pretty challenging. But um, the point is I'm a couple of weeks into the gig and – um, I might, in fact, my predecessor had even warned me of this particular situation. He said, uh, my predecessor said, if you ever do something like maybe you do a particular reverb or you do an effect or you do a, an EQ thing, whatever you do, be able to repeat it every show because he may, uh, n- he may not tell you that it's great or anything when it's happening, but he certainly will let you know if he misses it because you screwed it up and you didn't do it one night, right? So sure enough, I'm a couple weeks I'm a couple weeks into the gig, 
we're on an unfamiliar, I'm in an unfamiliar venue with an unfamiliar console and where I had been using our console, but I, they made me use the in-house console. And it comes to this one part of the song where I have been doing an effect and I oh, totally spaced out the effect. I just totally forgot to do that effect. And it was just a repeat of his voice in the song called times of your life. And so, so it comes to after the show that night and he, it's the inquisition, you know, he, he's got the band and the crew in the dressing room and he's going to each person in the band. What happened to this? What happened to that? What about the piano solo? What about the guitar solo? You know, all the different things that were wrong in the show. Right. And mm -hmm. he said, what about you? What about that effect in times of your life? Totally surprised me because I didn't even know he realized that I was doing it. Mm -hmm. But just like my predecessor had said, you know, I, I, I should be ready for it all the time. He's going to miss it. So sure enough. And so I said, I screwed up. I just totally spaced it out. And then from then on, he knew that I wasn't going to be one of these people that lied and told him stories about how the effects unit, you know, died or some story. I just, you know, fessed up and told him the real truth of what really happened. I just totally spaced it out because I was on an unfamiliar console. I didn't even give him the excuse that it was an unfamiliar console. I just said, I screwed up. I won't happen again. And sure enough, it never happened again. But the point is that I, I, my, uh, my failure to do that at the moment told me that I got to tell the truth and I'm not going to try to weasel my way out of this with some uh, fib about the equipment dying or something, you know? I want to, I want to jump back. Uh, so you, you, you sent me a picture. Uh, and it says uh, 1984 um, uh, Sh Shirley McLean. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, you have, I'm, I'm guessing, is this a, is this a, Gamble and a PM one thousand. That was a PM two thousand and a what else? A, a five twelve maybe. I forget that picture to be honest, but but uh, it was at the Gershwin Theater in New York City, mm -hmm. and uh, and yeah, it was a PM two thousand was our main console at the time, and I think I had a five twelve or something on the side for submixing strings or something. But um, but yeah, that was. Those were the days of submixers. If you need more, needed more channels, it was a thirty-two channel console, and then the five twelve would have been a twelve channel console. I don't know if it was a five twelve though. I'm not sure what it was. I was a Yamaha guy for all for many years. In fact, I thought, well, what are these guys talking about? About console sounds better until um, until I use an Amec recall, and I went, oh, now I now I know what they're talking about. That a console can sound better than another console. On, than another console uh the pm2000 was very generic sounded good but you know other consoles sounded better than it it's interesting when you use different consoles over the years i mean i used here's an interesting example of uh co yamaha consoles and other consoles one on paul anka when i started on the paul anka gig we had a harrison alive are you familiar with that console mm -mm. that's like taking a studio console on the road it was beautiful i mean but it was it was geared for the road it wasn't physically like a studio console mm -hmm. it was made for the road but it sounded like so great it was great sounding console but it had lots of breakdowns and failures and oh man you know the the number of times i had to take that thing apart to try to fix it was way too many so so the interesting thing was that um i stopped working for paul anka because or whatever and he uh, he lured me back saying, I'll get you a PM3000 because a PM3000 was just coming out at that time. And a PM3000, it turned out it was a brand new console, but it turned out it sounded so far inferior to the Harrison console. But at least it worked all the time was the point because that's mm -hmm. what Yamaha consoles do. They work perfectly all the time. But the Harrison console sounded so much better, but it was, man, a maintenance nightmare. 
But anyway, that was such a, when I think back on that change to change from using a Harrison Alive console to using a PM3000, what a letdown, you know? <laughs> it's like saying going from a Neve console to a to a, a Mackie or something. It's like sort of what that was through the years um, as outboard processing came available. Uh, you know, reverbs and you know, tape delays and, and and stuff like that. What what was some of your your, your go tos uh, early on? Well, I, friends of mine had the uh, Lexicon 224, and that sounded great. And we had a uh, 224 on Paul Anka, but it was very uh, unreliable and the 224X came out and it was so much better. And then the XL came out with the plastic Lark. Oh, so much better. So I really like those lexicon units over the years and, uh, just grew to really know what parameters to change in those units. And I just really love using them and making them sound just a certain way to, make the mix sound perfect and make that vocal just shine or whatever it is. I'm putting reverb on the drums or what have you. And, uh, I, I'm real fan of sticking with the sounds that I've used over the years and the same, uh, what are the algorithms that, that make me happy. Uh, and they continue to make me happy, you know, 20, 30 years later, they're still great sounds and you can, you can grow and use the, console built-in effects and they're they're okay sometimes sometimes they're better but uh i'm a big fan of sticking with things that i know work you had mentioned using um your your tape recorder um as as actual delay now in order for that to actually work do you have um um how do you get how do you get the repeat? Is it actually a single piece of tape that's around the two heads and just keep going around and around? How how does that how do you get that delayed actually? Well, work? well, that's okay. Um, well, well, you you simply put the tape deck in in tape. When you're listening to tape, so basically it's it's functioning as a delay unit. Okay, so it's just giving you a little delay because we didn't have digital delays, so mm -hmm. it's giving you a little delay. The delay between the record head and the play head, which is a couple inches, mm -hmm. uh, equates to so many milliseconds, probably 200 milliseconds or something, right? So it gives you that delay without a digital delay unit because we didn't have digital delay units. If you want repeats, you just turn up the um, the send back to it on that return channel. Does that make sense? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so you're just sending more to itself and that gives you more repeats and that gives you some kind of a echo sound. Right, and so you're 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 there's no adjustable time delay, right? No, it's, it's, it's exactly. A big, yeah, it's just yeah. a fixed delay. I mean, you can get you have two two different delay times. You got the seven and a half speed or the fifteen speed. So oh, okay. you put it at seven and a half, you got a longer delay. Fifteen, you have a shorter delay. You know, but that's it. You got two choices. How about did you um were you ever a fan of like the Roland Space Echo or the Echoplex? Oh my gosh, with the. Uh, with the one band that I worked with a lot, I think somehow we bought a Roland because the Roland Space Echo was it was great, and I remember remember using that um, extensively on their vocals. And I think there was even one song where um, where I would make it like I would crank up the uh, crank the repeats uh, to maximum, and then and then turn off the channel so it would go. Wah! and stop. You know, it was a real. It was a big part of the sound of the song because I had that that uh, ability to make it build up so quickly and uh that that space echo though was so cool because it was so such a reliable multifunction tool tool it had 
many delay times because you could switch between the different heads and then you could also uh, add reverb in it because it had reverb uh, control separate from the echo it was just a really cool unit to use on vocals at that time yeah that's something that so you know my you know my dad uh had a Roland space echo which i, I still have his actually and yeah. uh it, it's a 101 it's like it's first generation it doesn't have the reverb and, and all oh, that yeah. stuff on it um but he would tell me like you know the the difference that he liked or, or about between say uh echoplex versus a space echo is that like the echoplex you could very quickly just slide the head and <laughs> yeah. get to a time for the specific songs so you put a little tape mark and like this song is going to be you know uh at, at at this mark and this song with this whereas like the space echo you know you're you know speeding up and slowing down the tape you're not you know and so it's a little bit more of a guesswork you couldn't necessarily get there quickly however that allowed you like you said to be almost use it in uh, like an instrument in that you could get this enveloping sound that would grow or or slow down or whatever so you could it's it was a different flavor what you could actually do with with it yeah, yeah. I, I never used the Echoplex uh, for sound reinforcement. I always just left that with the guitar players. But um, if I recall, the the Space Echo has like a one two three position or something for the repeats. You know, mm -hmm. for the uh, for the uh, echo, and uh, I think that selected a different head or something. So you had a different delay time for each one, and then you have the speed of the tape was the other one. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a coarse and fine adjustment or something. Um, and I, I remember having certain settings for each, for certain songs and using the the heck out of it. And I, and I and I, then I remember when I started doing adult contemporary artists. I remember thinking, you know, reverbs are great. My friend John Reed worked for Ann Margaret, and he had that two twenty four XL, and he had that thing mastered. He would know exactly where what preset to put it on for what song, and it sounded amazing on Ann Margaret's voice. And I was just like, oh man, I got to do that. So I really focused on learning how the, to get the best sounds out of that 224 for many years there. And it was, it was a great device, but you know, you use what you have and you make the best of it and make it as good as you can so that the end result is that you have a great sounding show. Yeah. Uh, well, Ken, I, I appreciate you taking your time and, uh, and doing I a hope little... you can do something with these, <laughs> with these answers. They're kind of rambling. I'm sorry, but no, no, hopefully no, you can get it edited and make it make sense. Make me no, sound, absolutely. make me sound smart. I hope you enjoyed the beginning of this journey as we explore the history of live sound together. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would like to ask a few things. First, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Second, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Throughout the week, you will see various pictures and stories from the past. Lastly, but most importantly, please tell a friend. Help us get the word out about this project. Please check out and support The Clinic. Their mission is simple. They exist to empower and heal roadies and their families by providing resources and services tailored to the struggles of the touring lifestyle. The Clinic is committed to providing a safe space for roadies and their families to heal while off the road, and to advocate for and empower them to obtain a healthy work environment while on the road. Go to theroadyclinic.com for more info. Do you have a story to tell? Or maybe you want to know more about a specific topic within the history of live sound. You can send me a message on our website, howwegotloud.com. After all, this is a journey for all of us to take together. <laughs>